Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. This sermon was preached by Robert England at the Dayton Interchurch Holiness Convention in Dayton, Ohio in the year 2000. It's taken from Micah chapter 6, verse number 8, and he titles it, What Does the Lord Require? I know you will enjoy this wonderful message. very much, Brother Sankey. My text is one that many of you can quote, found in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. More than six centuries had passed since the children of Israel had entered into the land of promise. Under the direction of Moses, the Lord God led them out of Egypt through the Sinai Peninsula and had brought them to the eastern side of the Jordan River, just a few miles north of the Dead Sea. Following the death of Moses, God raised up Joshua to lead them into Canaan and to conquer much of the land. Then for about three centuries, God raised up judges in times of crises to give leadership and direction to the children of Israel when they had come under the hand of the oppression of an enemy. The last verse in the book of Judges summarizes briefly the condition of Israel at this time. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It almost sounds like the United States of America, doesn't it, in the year 2000. During the latter part of Samuel's ministry, he appointed his two sons to serve as judges in Israel. But the scripture declares they did not walk in the ways of their godly father. And finally, the elders of Israel came to Samuel, and they said unto him, Make us a king to judge us like the other nations. Although it was not God's will to give Israel a king at this time, the people insisted in spite of the faithful warnings of Samuel. And finally God said unto the judge, Hearken unto their voice and make them a king. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. For more than a century, the twelve tribes of Israel were united under the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. When Rehoboam ascended to the throne... 
The people came and asked that he might lighten their yokes, the financial burdens upon them, but Rehoboam refused. And consequently, the northern tribes broke relation and united under the kingship of Jeroboam. Some 70 to 80 years after the division of the kingdom, the Lord God laid his hand upon a young man named Micah and called him to a prophetic ministry. Micah lived in the little obscure village of Moresheth Gath, situated about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Rapid indeed was the spiritual declension in both Israel and Judah. Religious ceremonies and forms of worship were still prevalent, but my friend, true holiness was practically non-existent. It was nearly impossible to find a holy man. Micah cried out in chapter 7, verse 2, and he said, The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. In verse 4, he declared that the best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The prophet then warned that a visitation of judgment was at hand. A day of reckoning was near. My friend, God has an unchanging law that fits every generation, and that law affirms that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Charles Spurgeon once said this about preachers, and I quote, We love to play upon the silver trumpet of grace much more than to blow upon the ram's horn of judgment. End of quote. While this is certainly true, yet God again and again burdens his ministers to lift up their voices and cry out against all manner of sin and iniquity and faithfully warn every transgressor that there is coming a day of judgment. My friend, it is only against this dark backdrop of God's wrath upon sin that the glorious message of grace can shine forth in the fullness of its beauty. Both Israel and Judah had departed from the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. This departure precipitated a controversy with Jehovah. The fact that Israel was God's privileged and chosen people could in no way divert divine displeasure. Judgment always begins first with those who have had the greatest privileges and the greatest light. Indeed, the scripture says, unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. Peter declared that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin with us, what shall the end be of those who obey not the gospel of God? My dear friends, it matters not who we are or what tag we may wear or how long we have served the Lord God if we 
deviate from His blessed Word, if we grieve the Spirit of God, there will be a controversy with the Lord. God came down Himself from His holy temple to deal and judge His people. He called upon all the populace of the earth to be the jurors in the case at hand. He bid the mountains, the hills, and the foundations of the earth to hear his controversy, his accusations against Israel. The Lord asked the mountains which have no ears to hear because his people who had ears had refused to hear. In tender language, Jehovah asked his people in opening the court, O my people, what have I done unto thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? He urged them to testify against him and show any time or place where God had been unfair or unjust. He wanted them to witness to any commandment or any demand that had been unreasonable. But only silence follows. Israel is deeply convicted and has no response to give. So God testifies then to those mighty deeds which he had wrought in behalf of Israel. He had laid bare his mighty arm in delivering them from the galling yoke of Egypt. He had given to them Moses and Miriam and Aaron. He had confounded the evil designs of Balak and Balaam. The Lord God had manifested his great power by separating and dividing the Jordan and leading Israel from Shittim, their last camping point outside of Israel, into Gilgal, the first point where they camped upon entering the land. The rehearsal of divine deeds performed in behalf of Israel, had brought a deep sense of guilt and condemnation. The accused are clearly in the wrong and do not try to plead any innocence. But now a problem has arisen. How can Israel approach God? What shall they do? Would the Lord be pleased to accept burnt offerings from them? Would it be more efficacious if the number of rams could be multiplied into thousands? If vast amounts of oil could be brought forth before Jehovah, would he then be satisfied? Would the sacrifice of one's firstborn, the fruit of his body, for the sin of his soul, bring satisfaction to the Holy One of Israel who demands that the penalty of death be affixed to the one who would sin. Please observe, my friend, that guilty man has, is keenly aware that in his hand he has no kind of atonement to bring that is acceptable in itself. My dear friend, it is amazing, is it not, all the suggestions that sinful men will bring forth as ways to which he or she might approach and please God. But nothing short of divine revelation will suffice to point man to those requirements which alone can please and satisfy the Lord of glory. 
He hath showed thee what is good. It is significant to note, my friend, that whatever God requires is good. It is good in itself. It is good for the one fulfilling it. And it is good for those who are directly and indirectly affected by it. To those who walk with Him, He has promised to give grace and glory. And no good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. In simple and yet sublime language, the Jehovah sets forth three indispensable requirements for holy living, apart from which one can never enter into the city of God. These requirements are universal, for God is not simply addressing a Jew, but notice he says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee. May I direct your attention to the first requirement that the Lord God places upon his people. It is simply this, to do justly. It is to be understood that none of these requirements can be met by one's own strength. Friends, in order to do justly, one must first be made just or justified by the grace of God. The scripture reveals that there are three great changes which transpire in the work of conversion or what we often call the first work of grace. It begins with justification, which William Smith calls a changed record. Justification is a legal term and it denotes a pronouncement of God, by God, of pardon or forgiveness upon the penitent sinner. Oh, thank God for justification. It refers to what is called imputed righteousness because God declares that individual who meets his conditions to be right or just in the sight of God. But there is more to the first work of grace. Beyond forgiveness is the matter of regeneration, which Smith calls a changed nature. This involves imparted righteousness. Thank God it's not a matter of just declaring a pardon. God has a deeper work. Blessed be his name. Not only does God hand the penitent believer a clean and clear pardon, he also gives him a new nature by the mighty power of the Holy Ghost until old things are passed away and all things become new. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. My friend, justification is what God does for us by blotting out all of our transgressions. Regeneration is what he does in us by infusing divine life into our soul that had been dead in trespasses and sin. 
Thank God for forgiveness. Thank God for new life. But this is not all that is involved in the first work of grace. It also includes adoption, which Smith calls a changed relation. In the marvelous crisis work of justification and regeneration, God translates that individual who has repented and cast himself on the mercy of God. God translates him out of the kingdom of Satan and puts him into the kingdom of his dear son. And my friend, when that transpires, that penitent soul becomes a member of the greatest family on earth, the great family of God. Blessed be his name. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, Paul said, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father, blessed be God. Isn't it amazing that when a little baby reaches a point where he or she begins to articulate syllables, it's usually the first little word that a baby says, Dad, dad, and my friend, when we pray through, thank God, there's something about that relationship that there is a new cry in the heart. Father, Father, thank God. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I say praise God for such a relationship. Blessed be his name. By virtue of Christ's blood, every born-again believer becomes my brother or sister in the Lord. While one is not necessarily conscious of these three specific steps it taking place as single events at the time of conversion, it does appear that the logical sequence is first of all justification, then regeneration, and finally adoption. For in the very order of things, God would not surely adopt a dead child who had not been made alive in Christ Jesus, nor would he regenerate one whose record had not been made right in forgiveness. But in actual experience, while we don't recognize those little changes that take place so quickly, it would seem that forgiveness and the new birth and assurance are all simultaneous happening at the same time. But my friend, one thing is certain. When this wonderful miracle moment takes place, we can cry out, there is therefore now no condemnation. Praise the Lord forever. 
earth. After one has been justified freely, made into a new creature, and brought into the family of God, he or she will surely hunger and thirst after righteousness, after holiness. Indeed, a real clear evidence that we've been born again will be that very cry for all that God has for us. Thank God forever. My friend, if we would continue to do justly after conversion, we must follow after holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Only those who are entirely sanctified can therefore fulfill this first requirement that Micah lays down. But I would raise the question tonight, what does it really mean to do justly? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly? Whatever else it encompasses, Bible scholars are in general agreement that it at least means this much, to render to every person that which is due unto him, to render to every person that which is due unto him. My friend, it suggests that I am my brother's keeper and that I must love my neighbor even as I love myself. Therefore, to do justly speaks about relationships. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 7, Paul wrote these words, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute, custom to whom custom, fear unto whom fear, and honor to whom honor. There are three relationships which demand our attention. The first is one's relationship to God. What do I owe to God? What do you owe to him? I owe my very existence, for he is creator. I owe my daily life to him, for he is the sustainer of this universe. My friend, in him we live and move and have our being. I owe my redemption to God, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission. And in Christ alone we have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace, even the forgiveness of sins. I say praise the Lord. And if you could say amen, it would help me and maybe help you. I'm trying to move along so I won't keep you long, but I'll slow down if you can't push me a little bit. Praise God. I say hallelujah for justification by faith, for regeneration that makes us a brand new creature and puts us into the family of God. Hallelujah. Blessed be God forever. Dr. Tozer says the American indictment is Americans are enthused about everything except religion. He said we build taller buildings, broader highways, get more excited over sports than anybody in all the world, but we lack moral enthusiasm in personal religion, but not those who are regenerated and justified. Praise God forever. Hallelujah. Oh, I'm glad tonight that in him we do live and move and have our being. 
my friend. Therefore, I am obligated, you are obligated to submit to the call and claims of Christ. Confess and forsake all of our sins. Make every restitution possible. Present our body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Die out to sin and to the carnal self. Take up my cross daily and follow him. My life is no longer my own, for I have been bought with a price, even the precious blood of Jesus. I am now under the lordship of Christ Jesus and totally subservient to do his will. I have no claim to any personal right for I am the property of my Lord. Thank God forever. I am obligated to render obedience to him in every matter of life, for obedience is always better than sacrifice. I am committed to live by faith, to walk by faith, to walk in the light as he is in the light. Thank God. The second significant relationship is to one's fellow men. There are three important areas of vital concern. Let us begin uh, in the, uh, at the foremost, at the very top of the totem pole, and think for just a few minutes about one's relationship to his superiors. Most all of us uh, have, in some sense, of the word a relationship to a human superior and the Bible is concerned about rendering our dues in the matter of doing justly. 1 Peter 5, 5 declares, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. I can remember a time as a lad when it seemed quite common that Americans practiced this and had great respect for those who were older, even those who were just a little older. And you older folk can remember that day as well. But I tell you, it's a rare thing today to find much respect from the younger to the older. Many of the younger generation have been able to get a better education and may be more refined in culture. But friend, this is a clear biblical command that the younger are to indeed respect the older. Peter also exhorts servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward and to the harsh. And I fear in our day and age some go around and violate this clear command by saying that they don't think perhaps those over them are being gentle as we would like. But Peter says even if they're not gentle, you still have the obligation to give and to render unto them due respect. My friend, the principle throughout Scripture is simply this. Subordinates are to show due respect to superiors. Thank God forever. Praise the Lord. If we can't get blessed on that, I'm not sure we can get blessed on some emotional highlight. 
Oh, my dear friend, indeed, children are to respect parents, wives to husbands, servants to masters, citizens to government authorities. Let me address the laity for just a little bit, if I may. My friend, how do you respond to those whom God in his own constituted authority has set up? If you're a wife tonight, how submissive are you to your husband? If you are an employee, my friend, do you give proper respect to your employer? What about your pastor? What kind of due respect do you have toward him? A number of years ago, Mezgin Tedla was one of the evangelists at the GBS camp. I shall never forget him saying one day something to this effect. He said, I will probably never pastor a church in the United States. For he said, there is no respect for the minister. That was his observation coming from a foreign country. And then Brother Tedless said to me, Brother England, if you or any other faculty member at God's Bible School were to go to my home country, you would be highly esteemed and deeply appreciated and greatly loved by those to whom you would minister. My friend, let me ask those of us who are in the ministry a question or two. How do we render our dues to those of our superiors in the denomination or organization with which we are affiliated. I tell you, the independent spirit of the world has rubbed off far more than we would like to think in our day. A number of years ago, I heard about a couple uh, ministers in a certain denomination who declared that if a particular elder were elected to an office in official capacity, that man would never never preach in their pulpits, but I have a hard time finding any chapter, any verse in this word that would give any justification for that. My dear friends, let me ask you, has the old-fashioned biblical principle of accountability fallen by the wayside? Have we forgotten that God commands us to esteem very highly in love? those whom he has placed over us in his own choosing and those who admonish us. I'll give you time to think about it. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the great book on holiness. I tell you, real holiness where the rubber meets the road gives due respect to those in authority. Thank God forever. The fact of the matter is, it's one thing to talk about the golden rule. It's another thing to practice it. And that means that I ought to treat those who are over me in authority just like I would want them to treat me if I were over them. Oh, my friend, it would make a world of difference in our churches and in our movement if we just did justly. Praise God forever. A second area of concern in relationships is to one's fellow humans, is to one's equals. The language of Scripture is quite clear. 1 Peter 5, 5 also exhorts, all of you be subject one to another. There is a sense in which all Christians are indeed equal one to another. For at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Thank God forever. And the scripture makes it exceedingly clear. It, it, it admonishes 
each of us in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem the other better than themselves. In honor, preferring one another, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Praise the Lord. My, that, that ought to be shouting ground, Leonard. Praise the Lord. Oh, my friend, if we can't move, live up to that, we're in trouble spiritually. It's the basic requirement, the great requirement of God. He said it's a good requirement, and he requires it of me and requires it of you. Praise God forever. My friend, the sanctified attitude is one that will not place a stumbling block in the way of another. It will not lift up one's own personal desires above that of the needs of others. Paul said, if eating meat is going to offend one of my weaker brothers, I don't have to have meat. I'll lay it aside even though I know there are no other gods than God. I tell you, friend, a real sanctified attitude is a humble attitude. Mr. Wesley said it brings humble joy. Thank God forever. No, it's not a blessed God. I can do as I please because it has one's brother in mind. Blessed be God forever. Oh, it really isn't what we say about God. It's easy to say I love God. But the scripture says if we don't love our fellow man, that is the clear evidence if we love God or whether we don't. Oh, what a beautiful spirit and attitude and example of Paul. He desired that his life should be a constant witness to the fulfilling of the second greatest of all the commandments. Another area of concern involves one's relationships to one's subordinates. Colossians 4.1 admonishes masters, Give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing ye also have a master in heaven. One of the areas of temptations all of us face, whether we're in leadership or not, but I think particularly those who are in leadership, is this matter of respect of persons. The scripture claims. God is no respecter of persons. And he warns us very carefully about treating some people differently than we treat others. May God have mercy on us in this new century if we're guilty of forming little cliques and clans in our own movement that will include some but exclude others. James makes it absolutely clear that if we do not treat all people with due respect, we can't count it an oversight or a mistake. But James very bluntly says, if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin. Let me mention another important relationship, namely one's relationship to oneself. We have certain responsibilities to our own selves. We must take proper care of these earthen vessels, for they are the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We must carefully guard our minds and be sure we don't allow anything to filter through that would be detrimental. We must keep our spirit in right relation to God. Oh, what a personal responsibility is mine and yours, for my soul is continually in my hand. In Micah's era, God had a controversy 
with Israel and Judah because they were not rendering to God or to man what was due unto them. This is seen in at least two areas, and I'm only highlighting it. First of all, it involved Israel's relish for things temporal. A materialistic craze had gripped the people in that day, and uh, for some of them it involved a great desire to gain real estate. Chapter 2 and verse 2 says they covet fields and houses. Nothing wrong in itself with real estate, but it began to get a grip upon them. For others, it involved an obdue obsession with making money. Chapter 3 and verse 11 declares... The priests teach for hire and the prophets prophesy for money. Both laity and clergy were addicted. Wesley declared in his day that love of money was the chief cause of spiritual decay in the church. And church history reveals that it happens over and over again. My dear friend, since our economy is strong tonight and materialistic goods are easy to acquire, we are constantly confronted with the temptation to lay up treasures on earth. Since most material goods are not sinful in and of themselves, it is easy for us to forget Jesus' words in Luke 12 and verse 15 when he said a man's possessions, a man's life consists not in the abundance of the possessions which he has. In assessing the spiritual status of the evangelical church in the middle of the past century, A.W. Tozer made this observation. He declared that most of our gains in the past century in the church world were for the most part external gains, better facilities, greater technology, and there's certainly nothing wrong with any of that. But Tozer said it appears that most of our losses have been internal. Oh, may God help us in the late part of this church age. Not only did God have a controversy with Israel because of her relish for things, but my friend, also because of Israel's rejection of truth. It seems to follow as a natural consequence when people get caught up with an undue attachment to that which is earthly. It seems then it's easier to reject truth. Israel no longer wanted to hear truth as they once did. Chapter 2 and verse 6 declares the people cried out and said, Prophesy ye not. Micah was contemporary with Isaiah, and to Isaiah the people urged, Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Can I get an amen if I just have the scripture? Leave out everything else, because maybe it's not, not up to apropos. But my friend, the word indicates, and some research recently by one man of God has indicated that before judgment has come on any people whose cup of iniquity has been filled, it appears they were living in the most prosperous times financially and with material goods. And I believe we're facing a late hour in America. May God help us. I enjoy material things as well as you, and I'm not saying it's wrong to have 
have them. But if somehow it stamps out and causes us to leak spiritually, friend, we better get rid of some of our materialism. God, have mercy on us. We're in a day when we want a soft gospel. We don't want any rugged truths, it seems. But you can't preach this old book without some rugged truths if you preach the whole counsel of God. Oh, my dear friend, by the early 1600s, the spiritual tenor in New England, they tell us, had reached a very low ebb. Some ministers thought they could help matters out by adopting what they called the halfway covenant. And I think there have been a lot of refinements and a lot of new revivals of that covenant under this system People could get their children baptized even if they were sinners, if they only gave a mental assent to the doctrine of faith and were not, quote, scandalous in life. But my friend, the problem arose later when the children grew up. If they didn't get converted, they were simply denied the partaking of communion. And then another problem followed. They, there were finally more halfway members in the church than there were genuine saints. This led to another concession. No one was now denied the Lord's Supper. Furthermore, the halfwayers began entering into the ministry. My dear friends, let me speak to you out of my heart. If the fire of God goes out upon the altar of our heart, it doesn't take long for secondhand religion to become prominent, preeminent, and dominant where the doctrines and the duties are soon diluted and everything. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. One of the greatest hindrances to revival throughout church history has been in many places the unconverted or the backslidden church members. Oh, if God could only get those who have been backslidden or not converted at all really right with God, it would do something in our local churches. I was not there, but I understand 20 plus years ago, Percy True Blood was preaching in a large camp meeting. I had the privilege of hearing him several times as a young preacher, and I can tell you, and those of you that are older that have heard him would agree with me, Brother True Blood would have not been classified as one of those bone scrapers. He wouldn't have fit into that camp. He was a biblical preacher. I never saw him open his Bible. They say he could have probably restored two-thirds of the Bible that he had committed to memory. But in a large camp meeting, it could have been anywhere. He said in a service when he was preaching on backsliding something I would never think to say, and I'm sure he didn't say it carefully carelessly, but he made this kind of comment. He said, if everyone in this congregation were minding God today, two-thirds would be at the altar and many preachers would lead the way. I'm sure he wasn't trying to be harsh or cruel, but my friend, there's a reason why there's not more fire burning. There's a reason why we're not reaching outside our own ranks. I go from church to church and I thank God for what I'm seeing here and there. 
there. I thank God for you who love him above everything else. But I tell you, not all is kosher. Not all is what it ought to be. Oh, my friend, it's a late hour. Not only does my text exhort us to do justly, but also to love mercy. Luther translates it thus, to practice love. The Hebrew term carries the idea with it of favor, kindness, and pity. Mercy must always be blended in with justice, but instead of loving mercy, the princes of Israel loved evil and hated good. Chapter 3 and verse 2, when God spared Nineveh, Jonah was angry and he said unto the Lord, I know that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. Oh, I'm glad he's a gracious God. He's a long-suffering God. That's why we're here tonight. My friend, the two greatest commandments entail love for God first then the vertical line and love to all of our fellow men on the horizontal line. It is a love shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Ghost, a love without mixed motives, a love without partiality, a love perfected by God's grace. Hallelujah. The early church was known for its love one for another. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one for another. Oh, my friend, I wonder what the world thinks when they look on. I wonder if they see that kind of love amongst us. A number of years ago, a young lady who at that time was one of my students spoke to me one day about a concern that she had. It's been several years ago. She had spent a number of years on a mission field with her parents. And she said, Brother England, when I got back to the U.S., I was shocked. She said, I couldn't believe the lack of love and the friction that I observed among some of the different holiness groups. She said it wasn't that way on the mission field. We had a number of different holiness groups represented, but we loved each other and we fellowship with one another. My friend, I tell you what, while we have all of our own distinctions, God have mercy on us if we put little boxes up to get the best fellowship with others. Oh, no wonder Wesley said if we seek anything other than more love to God and to our fellow men, we will go amiss. A baptism of divine love will destroy cliques and clans and religious politics. It will put a good construction on the deeds done by others. For love believeth all things, endureth all things, beareth all things, and hopeth all things. I hasten toward a close in the third and final place. My friend, we are admonished to walk humbly with our God. The way of holiness entails the walk of humility. According to one scholar, the Hebrew literally says, bow low to walk with God. Israel was walking haughtily in her self-centered ways. Peter exhorts us to be clothed with humility. 
He declares that God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but he knoweth the proud afar off. My friend, humility is necessary not only for communion with God, not only to get saved and sanctified, but to keep in victory. But if we're going to serve him, it's going to take humility in our hearts. I think of a man who thought more highly than, of himself than he ought to have thought. He made his exit off the train one day and saw a black man standing nearby whom he assumed was an employee of the railroad. He ordered that man to pick up his luggage and to carry it, which he did immediately. But as they were walking along the way, they passed a gentleman who recognized the one carrying the luggage, and he said, Hello, Dr. Carver. Oh, how it shocked the white man. He turned and looked to the man carrying his luggage and said, Are you Dr. George Washington Carver? And the man said, glad to be of service, sir. Oh, thank God for a George Washington Carver who wasn't above carrying somebody else's luggage. Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom of God are the servants of all. Praise the Lord. Brother Heron used to tell us there's one sure way to bring God on the scene. It's by humbling ourselves. But a greater than S.D. Heron said, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. It's the first level. It's the beginning level. And then pray and seek my face. He's really saying unless we humble ourselves, the other factors won't really figure in very much. But if my people shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and then turn from every wicked way, from everything offensive toward God, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Duncan Campbell had been graciously converted in the wee hours of the morning when he sought God with all of his heart in that little barn on his father's property. And later on, a few years later, he was sanctified wholly in a rather unique situation as an evacuated wounded soldier being taken off the battlefield during World War I. He was wonderfully sanctified. God used Duncan Campbell in a mighty way in his early ministry. And then Duncan settled into, into some pastoral duties with a group after leaving a faith mission with which he had been connected, a very conservative faith-oriented group in Britain. For about 23 years, he served distinctly and was indeed a great preacher but somewhere along the way, after serving in probably three or four pastorates, one night his daughter came into his presence. It was perhaps late at night. She was, I think at the time, a university student. And she said, Daddy, I would like to talk to you for a little while, please. He said, Darling, go ahead and talk. She said, Daddy... I want to ask you a question. She was very kind. She respected her father. He said, darling, go right ahead. There's no one here but you and me. Tell me whatever you want. 
She said, Daddy, years ago you used to preach with anointing. The Holy Ghost would come. The meetings that you were in were swept by a gale of power. The Holy Ghost would come and people would bow like grass bows when the wind blows over it. But Daddy, you don't preach like that anymore. Whatever happened to you, Daddy? How can you preach like this when you have known God the way you knew him years ago? Duncan said, I just patted my daughter on the shoulder and I said, thank you, darling. He said, I went into my room, apparently into his study. He said, I took off my coat and I lay down on the linoleum. There was no carpet there. I lay down on my stomach. He said, I heard the clock as it struck 12 and then 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. He said, about 6 o'clock in the morning, I heard a tap, tap, tap on the floor, and I knew my wife was asleep. It had to be, it had to be the foot sounds of my daughter, the one who had said, Daddy, you don't have the anointing that you once had. Daddy, you don't have the compassion that you once had. And you don't weep like you once wept. Daddy, your theology is correct. Your doctrine is right. But Daddy, you don't have anything flowing out of you. There's no life. Duncan said at the very time he heard the foot sounds, God gave him an awesome vision, a vision like he had never had before in his life. He said God gave him a vision of hell. He said, I saw the millions of lost people in hell, and I heard their groans of damnation. He said, I didn't say anything to my daughter. I'd never had a vision like that. I'd asked God for visions, but this was beyond me. He said, it just seemed like my own heart was going to burst. But he said, my daughter came over and put her hand upon my head. And she prayed and said, oh God, I don't know what's wrong with my daddy. But please don't let him go insane. He said, a little while later, his daughter prayed again. And she said, oh God, don't let my daddy go mad. But please restore him to where he once was. Mr. Campbell said I, he finally got up off of his posture on the floor and he said he poured his heart out to God. He said, Lord, give me one more touch. I want to build my altar again. I want to confess my failure. He said, I want to confess that I've become too popular. My friend, I'm sure I'm not being popular by preaching what I am, but I have to preach to you what God has laid on my heart. I take no delight in a a more difficult truth, but I can tell you, I remember the time we used to be warned about becoming too popular right in the ministry. But it seems like in our day, the more popular, the better. But oh, my friend, Duncan Campbell saw under that close scrutiny of the Holy Ghost, he had become too popular. He said, I want to confess that I've even came to the point, I've come to the point of admiring my own preaching. I don't know how a man could ever get to that point, but apparently he was. 
He continued to lay bare his own heart until God laid his big hand upon him and restored him to that undescribable grace and glory that he had once known. Before long, Duncan said he resigned from his parish ministry that had given him a very secure, comfortable financial setting, and he had gnawing doubts in his mind if he had done the right thing years before. But now he reconnected with faith mission, no set salary at all. He would travel and live by faith in an itinerant ministry. But God honored his servant, gave him a larger harvest of souls than he had probably ever had, especially in the Hebrides revival. Oh, I say thank God for men that will humble themselves when the Holy Ghost begins to dig around their roots. My dear friends, in light of the lateness of the hour in which we live and the lukewarmness that permeates so much of the visible church world and the lack of revival fire in so many of our churches and the abounding of sin throughout our nation, is it not time for us to sanctify a fast and call a solemn assembly and weep between the porch and the altar and pray as did the priest in Joel's day, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach. Oh, my friend, can I ask you, as well as myself, some closing questions? Do we have any altars that need to be rebuilt tonight? Do we have any failures and shortcomings that we need to confess to God? Our coldness, our lukewarmness, our prayerlessness, oh, our lack of burden, our lack of brokenness for lost souls, our preoccupation with the temporal and the tangible until it's so hard to see the eternal, our overemphasis sometimes on abilities and personalities and talents and our lack of emphasis on the person and work of the Holy Ghost. Oh, my friend, our failure sometimes to maintain a clear-cut line of demarcation between the church and the world. I think it was Brother Shmuel who said from this convention a number of years ago that in our come-outer movement, we were then some 15 years ago, if I remember correctly, in worse shape than the old mother church. And I'm sure Brother Shmuel wasn't trying to put a damper on us, but friend, if that's true, how much we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Oh, my friend, what about our... Our, our attitudes and our activities. What about those tendencies to become more like the world in our dress and our desire for entertainment that is not edifying and our lack of self-denial and our failure to embrace the spiritual disciplines. Oh, my friend, are we content to have a form of godliness even if the Holy Ghost is missing? Have we harbored ill will or wrong feelings that need to be confessed? My dear friends, I'm so glad that the Lord has promised if we will rend our hearts and not our garments, he will be merciful, he will be gracious. He even said he would restore the years that were lost to the locust and the palmer worm and the canker worm and the 
caterpillar while it is yet day before the night sets in I would plead with us let us break up our fallow ground let us seek the Lord until he would rain righteousness upon us until we are more than stirred until we are changed through and through for he hath showed thee O man what is good and what doth the Lord require of you and you and you and you and you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. May the Lord help us that we can see an outpouring of his spirit, whatever it may take. God bless you. Thank you, Brother Sam. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. 